The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And then and about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those, who, those, hire, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Then take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff, no reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it was from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Uh, Psalms, from the New, just part of the New Testament. A little book about this big, this thick. You know. He said, I wrote in the front of it that I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew 
that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like to show and so on. And then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And, uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. As we conclude our series on what it is to live out a third cultural invol involvement and how that meshes with our, uh, some of our key points of our mission action plan, I want to have a, a quick recap on where we have been. We have uh, extrapolated, extrapolated out three um, main themes over the last few weeks based on what uh, many uh, of your Bibles will list as the great commandment or the greatest commandment, Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The three main themes that we are looking at from the very words of Jesus concerning third cultural engagement are seeking the other. As we noted some weeks back, there is an element of unknown as we embark on this journey to seek the other. Elements we must purposefully observe and consider during the journey, just as the Apostle Paul did in Athens when he preached about the unknown God. So the question that uh, we asked was, where is your Athens? 
And as we can see, that young man went to, to Penn Teller, and that was his Athens. No, sorry, was it was Penn, Gillette Penn, sorry. Uh, and that was his Athens. And so where is your Athens? That's what we um, nuanced out. So who, who are you seeking to understand? Who are you seeking to connect with? And so myself, it's the Muslim guy at the gas station, the marathon gas station who works in the chicken shop. I go over there perhaps once a week and uh, get, get a, a macaroni and cheese or a couple of wings. And that's my, he's my connection. I'm, he's my Athens. Last week, we looked at reconciliation and forgiveness, reconciling, uh, sorry, reconciling, re- recognizing who is your neighbor. They are those within our faith community and they are those without, outside of our faith community. So those within and those outside. So third cultural engagement answers the question, who is my neighbor? And says, if it is all possible, As far as it depends on me, I will live at peace with everyone. Finally, the subject that we will nuance this morning and make uh, many small, subtle distinctions about is including the outsider. We would look at the joy of being hired. So let me pray first. Father, we come before you acknowledging that unless the Holy Spirit teaches us that we will not really understand what you are saying. So Holy Spirit, as the one commissioned of the Father and sent by Jesus Christ to lead us in all truth, help us now. Help me to properly handle your word in Christ's name. And for his name's sake we ask, amen. How many have read this morning's parable over the years and like me, you have thought, what an incredibly unfair parable that is. As any of us who have had what is graciously called a higher education, any of us who have had uh, ever, uh, ever studied economics or had run a small business or a major business or managed people on their jobs or anyone who has been concerned with just wages, we read this parable and it sends us crazy. The parable has probably had more evil spoken against it with more confusion than any other single parable in the New Testament. Because on the face of it, we read the unfairness of wages paid, or to put it in another way, the tragedy of unequal wages and unequal gifts. Let me challenge the statement that we have all heard and probably used at some point, and that is, We are all equal. In terms of our requirement to obey God's word, yes, yes, we are all equal. And there within lies the end of equality. If we lined up everyone here and had a foot race, we would not all be equal in terms of speed, would we? If we tried to see who could jump the highest, we would not all be equal in physical attributes, would we? If we bought in a car that needed repairing, we would not all be equal in terms of mechanical aptitude. We are not all equal in terms of our spatial conceptual abilities. And if we had an English exam, we would not all score equally, even if we had the same classes with the same teacher. How many have ever met someone with the gift of languages. 
as, as, as a very young man, my third ever job in my young adult life that I ever had, I worked for uh, the State's Road Department and Maintenance uh, Division and, and, and Manufacturing Depot, and I was there helping make road signs. And I worked with two brothers who spoke nine languages each fluently. So my point is that we are all not equal in our ability to communicate. We are not equal in our ability to conceptualise. The truth be told, we are all very diverse, we are all very dissimilar, we are all very unequal in many, many ways. Now, we don't want to admit that because people use that against one another. They do that in the power, uh, in power plays, they do that with bigotry, they do that with racism. Now, you don't have to be born yesterday to know that what people do with that or how they leverage that unequalness. The simple truth is God has made us all different, all unique, and there can be no stereotyping, whether that be racial, whether that be intellectual, or one thing or another, we are all different, and we, we are all not equal, except in the terms of our responsibility to obey God and his word. Our culture doesn't want to deal with that this morning. One of the pushbacks on this, uh, the social philosophy of egalitarianism or equity, uh, which has permeated our society and the politics of our government, egalitarianism is a humanistic teaching that says we are all equal and if we are not all equal, the government will make sure that we are all equal. And this has created a whole barrel of monkeys in itself, hasn't it? The world wants the benefits of Christianity. It wants the social outcomes that Christianity produces, but it doesn't want Jesus. The world wants the fruits of Christianity, but it will not buy the tree. Luke 5.36 says, Jesus said, No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it onto an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. So, when we hear this parable, because we've all been exposed and infected by this ideology of egalitarianism, the ideology that says, I must have my own place under the sun, the ideology that says, uh, only two types of people exist, the haves and the have-nots, the victim and the victor, or the oppressed and the oppressor, and because of this, we miss what Jesus says. Because in our text, we see men that on the face of it, that should have received more wages because they worked harder than the others. And so what, we really, what is really underneath all of that, as Jesus points out, is envy. This is 13 to 15 says, but... He answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the men or the man who, who was hired last the same that I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? When we take away 
some of our misconceptions and mindsets, the heart of this parable becomes much, 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 much clearer. It becomes very clear. The heart of this parable, from God's point of view, is the tragedy of unhired and unengaged lives. The parable is not a parable about economic or social justice. It is a parable. It is not a parable, sorry, dealing with socialism or appropriation. This parable is dealing with the tragedy of lives that have never been engaged. The lives of men and women that, for whatever reason, will not engage themselves in the master's vineyard or have never been asked or invited to participate in their heavenly father's business. John 5.19 says, Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus' words give us an insight into the very fact that God is at work. He is about his business. In our country, in our city, in our neighbourhoods, in our communities. And it is sad to say that for many times he is about his business despite what his church is doing. What Jesus is saying is we need to be looking at and looking for where our Heavenly Father is working. Where that, whether that be in a person, whether that be in a community, whether that be in a people group, whether that be in a family or in a business. To gain a deeper understanding of this parable, we need to lay a foundation and revisit the fact that our God is a creator. We are not sitting here this morning because of some cosmic accident. The fact is that you and I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. That you and I are the intent of a loving and creating God. We are not the result of the relative laws of a universe, as some would have us believe, but we are the result of the objective and fixed laws of a creator God. Relativity and all the other humanistic theories and tangents that have built on this foundation are, are deconstructive ideologies and have stripped... They've stripped a generation of their purpose and design. And the ramifications and the implications of this in, a human, in the human psyche is immense. I refuse this morning to believe that I am some product of, cos of a cosmic accident or the product of slime plus time. To believe in the humanistic and the materialistic steals from me of who I am and what I am. And it robs me of knowing God as my creator and leaves me with only one absolute, and that is death and oblivion. So here is where my line of thought meets the text of Matthew 20. If you lose the reality of God, the creator, what you are left with is human beings that have no inner concept that they are carefully crafted by a creator or have a destiny and a purpose. 
If you rob destiny out of a human life, you have taken from them the single most important thing that they possess, and that is their destiny. The world system will tell you that life is random, that life is relative. What a futile existence, because if you have to put meaning where there's no meaning, then you become God. And all of us are so acutely aware of our sins, and so we don't make very reliable gods. And if life is random and if life is relative, then we end up with a generation, and we have, that just looks after number one. Because there is no destiny, there is no obligation to serve anyone or consider anyone. Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 says, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection of which Christ Jesus first possessed me. What motivated the Apostle Paul was not going to heaven. It wasn't being a religious goody-two-shoes and it wasn't becoming the most moral man that ever lived. He had one driving desire this morning, which was to fulfill his destiny. Paul was a man that was in touch with his destiny. When a man or a woman is in touch with their destiny, they are an unstoppable force on planet Earth. The strength of being in touch with your own destiny is that you see sin for what it really is. No longer is it just God's enemy or just the wrong thing to do, but it becomes your enemy. Why does that happen? Because sin becomes an object to you fulfilling your destiny and what you were created to do. Any of you who have counselled or who have mentored, whether as a parent, as a teacher, as a big brother, as a big sister, as a leader of people, you'll all know for a very fact that until a person sees sin as their enemy and not just God's enemy, they will not change. Let me make this radical statement. People will not change for God. Lasting, long-lasting, permanent change only occurs in a human being when they perceive that sin is not just a moral violation against a moral God. Change only comes when it is an absolute hindrance for that person to go where they want to go and do what they want to do. When you grasp your destiny, you will come to a new understanding of the nature of sin. And you will come into a new understanding of how to exercise power over it. Because you're no longer fighting what God doesn't like. You're fighting what you don't like as well. We see this in the natural realm. Has anyone ever seen a 350-pound horse jockey? Do you think someone has got to continually remind a horse jockey, don't eat, don't eat? No, these blokes know what it takes to keep their job, don't they? And they do it well and don't have to be motivated to watch their diet because they've got a vision. 
and a desire to be on that winning horse. They are motivated by what they believe and they do it best. So what I'm asking you to do is get on God's side of sin this morning so that you can get a clear vision of your destiny, so that sin is your enemy as well as God's enemy. The reason God hates sin isn't because he's a moral prude. God hates sin because by its very design, it keeps God's created order from doing and becoming what he wants them to be. Not because he's a moral prude. I say all of that to say this. Relativity and all the other humanistic theories and tangents that have built on this foundation rob people of that need and that desire to search for their destiny. And that leaves us unhired this morning. That leaves us unhired. So until you find your destiny, you will remain unhired. The thing that saddens my heart is when I see Christians who are saved and yet very, very miserable. We have taken the gospel of Jesus Christ and we say that Jesus saves and that Jesus is wonderful. And if that is all true, and it is, why are so many Christians uptight? Why is there so many uptight Christians? Why is the divorce rate among Christians nearly parallel to non-Christians? Why do we have so many addictive problems amongst Christians? Because we have preached a pygmy view of what God is about. Because we have preached a pygmy gospel that says what God is only interested in is changing your geographic location in the universe. We have preached that he wants to move you from heaven, from earth, sorry, to heaven. Or he wants to move you from earth away from hell. While this is all true, this is not the issue. The issue is when God saves a life, he saves it so that he can hire it. So he can give that life worth and meaning. God doesn't save a life simply to make us moral. God doesn't save a life so that we can become good little boys and girls. God saves our lives so that we can come into the destiny that he created us for. And that means he wants to hire us. He wants to hire us. God wants to hire people. He saves them first and then he wants to hire them. The tragedy is that there are millions of saved Christians and relatively only few of that number is hired. Chapter 6 of our mission action plan makes a pathway. We're saying that we want to make a pathway for seekers to become disciples. All right? And this 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 whole idea of being hired, that 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 pathway attempts to address that tragic issue and we put that into our mission action plan. And so this parable is easily explained by the nature of Christian leadership and service. The way we serve people is to hire them in Christ, to engage them in the ministry and the mission of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, 
for the edifying of the body of Christ. Another way we could say that is hiring people and giving them a skill that they need to giving them a skill that they need to fulfill their job. If you are a leader in the body of Christ, then you are compared to a coach. Now, a good coach sets goals for the athlete that is beyond what the, uh, is attainable by themselves. A good coach calls somebody up to something, don't they? That is beyond their ability. And that is what God is expecting from us in whatever capacity of leadership that we are involved in, whether you are a father, whether you are a mother, whether you are a grandparent, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a mentor, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a manager, a good leader calls people up beyond themselves and gives them the tools to get there. So as a church, we are called to equip people and position them to serve. As a parent, your primary task under God is to help your children find their design. Because when children don't find their design, they drift. But when they do, they become motivated and hired. My job as a spiritual leader is to help people get hired. And when they do, my job is then to give them the equipment that they need to do the job. This also plays out in the role of parenting, the role of teaching, the role of mentoring, the, church, the, the role of church leadership. Every area of life where you have the ability to help someone find their design and purpose. So let's get back to our text and where we need to go and make some implications and, and make some conclusions. We have... Been looking at Matthew 20, and there is one recurring theme that the owner of the vineyard does. What does he do? He goes out looking for unhired people. That's the recurring theme. The very burden of God and the burden of a third culture community, a community that is modelled and seeking to model that Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 culture, is to continually be looking, to continually be inviting the unhired life, the unengaged life, those that are on the fringe, the outsider. Remember, in verse 1, Jesus tells us, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Now, just a heads up, in the ancient Middle East days, there was two blocks of 12 hours to a day. So the first hour of the new day started at 6 a.m. Now you can do the rest of the math there, right? Verse 6 to 7 says, And about the 11th hour, so 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hires us. Now, we think that people with the greatest ability always rise to the top. Not so. You can have all the talent and the skill in the world, but if your heart is unhired, you will drift. Because it takes a coach to hire you and to pull you up to what you can never do on your own. There's a movie 
I think, which typifies what I'm trying to say. I know that many of you have seen it and probably many of you have not seen this or many of you have seen it at least once. And there are many of you, like you go, if I was 60 years old, maybe I've seen this movie. The movie's called The Magnificent Seven. The whole story of this movie is about the tragedy of unhired men who, when somebody hires them, they are brought back to life. Seven gunfighters that all knew what they did best. That was to hire themselves out to those who couldn't protect themselves. And so the story goes that the West was changing and uh, nobody needed gunfighters anymore. It was becoming civilised. And so you could imagine the tragedy of these idle men who were once great men. They were now drinking and overweight and they're rusting away in the saloons and they have unhired lives. And it's not until some poor defenceless peasants, you know, they're just being besieged by the, the banditos, they come to them and they, they scrape together what little they have and Yul Brenner's character recognises even if, if the Mexican peasants can't pay him. Nothing is better if he is enlisted and called back to what he does best. There's something like even a dollar a year is better than rusting away in the saloon. And so this scenario plays out in the movie seven times before the climax of the movie. Each of the men realise that they are standing idle in the marketplace, rusting away. It's a sad reality that in our Western culture, we have churches all over the world that are filled with men and women who are rusting away. Men and women who have never been hired because no one preached a gospel that challenged them. Because they have never had a coach that called them up beyond their ability. So the question that I want to ask you is this. Has Jesus hired you? If the answer is no, for whatever reason that might be, maybe you're too timid or that you didn't know or you, you know but you've resisted. Whatever it is, you need to do whatever it takes, beloved, to get hired. That might mean talking to your wife or your husband. It might mean talking to your parents. It might mean talking to your pastor or, the, or one of the church wardens. It may be as simple as talking to someone who looks like they've been hired, who looks like they're engaged. So whatever you do, don't rust away in the marketplace. Don't stand idle in the marketplace. The tragedy of this parable is not unequal wages. It's idle men and women whose lives are rusting. The flip side to this parable is that you just have to walk out of this church into the streets and into the community and see idleness and lives rusting away as well. Because no one has hired them. No one has challenged them with why they have been created. And if you want to engage the heart of another human being, hit them, where the reality, hit them with the reality that they're not hired. And I guarantee you, they will fall into a million pieces. Because the greatest human tragedy on planet Earth is unhired lives. Lives that no one has cared enough about or had, or had enough wisdom to put a challenge in front of them. 
and say, God created you. Forget about churchianity. Forget about religion. Forget about science. Let's talk about the tragedy of your, rust, your rusting away in your life. Let's talk about that tragedy, that you're rusting away in your life. And so the question that needs to be asked is, who has hired you? Who has called you to the labour to labour in the vineyard? What this whole topic forces us to look at is, is arm-length Christianity. You can't hire someone at arm's length. You can't engage someone at arm's length. Sure, you can bring them to church at arm's length, but if you're going to hire somebody, it means getting involved in their life. And that scares us because we all know we lose a measure of our own freedom when we get involved in somebody else's life. So what's the end of the matter? I believe God is calling us to seriously look at this reality as a church of what's going, what, what is going on also in our culture and what is going on in our community and our neighbourhoods and what is going on also in our church. And finally, what is going on in our own lives. That is the reality that I believe God is calling us to seriously look at as we end this message uh, series uh, on third cultural engagement and start to lean in to our 2024-2026 mission action plan. So let's pray. Father God, let us be like the owner of the vineyard whose concern was not with crop Challenge each of us to have a focus for the idle lives in the marketplace of life, for those men and women who have never been hired. Father God, may the Lord Jesus Christ move within this church and take upon ourselves, that we might take upon ourselves the burden of Jesus so that we become employment agents for Jesus in the marketplace of life. May God have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.